Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. My name is Joe Works in Elmira, New York, <clears throat> New Jersey there. Uh, <laughs> joining me is Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. How are you, Jeff? Hey, doing fine. Glad you know where you are. Yeah. And also uh, with us this afternoon is Drew DeGrado uh, in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Hi, Joe. Glad to be here with you guys today. Thankful to have you all with uh, with me as we talk about sin. Uh, we're going to spend our time uh, this afternoon uh, discussing uh, what sin is, uh, trying to come up with a good biblical definition or definitions, maybe, uh, talking about what sin is, talking about uh, what are sinners or who are sinners, uh, who has sinned, and uh, then we'll close off, perhaps uh, time allows to deal with what can be done about sin in the world and in our own personal lives. Um, so maybe just to get this started a little bit, uh, give you a background for why uh, I found interest in this topic particularly today. Recently, I was in a Bible study in Acts, the 10th chapter, and we've talked about Acts 10 in our webinars before, but uh as I was discussing this with a few other people in a study recently, someone was asking the question after noting what a great person Cornelius was. Remember uh, Acts 10 and verse 2. He was a devout man. He feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously, always um, very obedient, very humble. Um, you see him even evangelistic uh, through the story. Just so many good things about him. Um, uh, go over to chapter 10 and verse 22. Uh, others, what, what others said about him. He was a just man, one who feared God. Great reputation among the nation of the Jews. So just a, a pillar of the community and uh, also from a religious vantage point. Just had a lot of uh, very impressive things said about him, and yet when we read through the text, one of the things we find out is uh, that he needed to have forgiveness of sins. And so when we got over to Acts, the 10th chapter, and in verse thir- uh, 43, <clears throat> in Peter's message to him, it says, to him all the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will have remission of sins or forgiveness of sins. And somebody asked the question the first time, I taught through the book of Acts, Acts 10, dozens, I don't know, maybe hundreds of times over the years, and somebody asked, what sin was it that Cornelius had committed? And I paused and had to, like, run my mind through the the text. It's like, well, I don't think any sin is recorded. We looked at it again, and sure enough, nothing is specified. But I, if I understood the question right, it was such that if Cornelius, as good of a man as he was, needed to forget us a sin, what sin was it that he committed that he needed to have forgiveness for? Um, uh, you know, uh, such a good guy, you would you don't even think of him as a sinner, really. Right, right. And so, that story kind of reflects a modern-day attitude. And the attitude is, if I'm basically a good person, I'm going to heaven. And And Cornelius was a really good person. So why does he need to be saved? Exactly. And uh, so we, we talked about that some, and uh, of course, we drew no conclusions about what sins he might or might not have committed. Um, uh, but one of the things that we talked about was what sin is, because I think sometimes people have in their minds that 
people that need forgiveness of sins, those are babies. Um, uh, you know, that's the, the, the sixth and the seventh commandments, uh, you know, don't murder and don't commit adultery. You know, those are, are really horrible things. Uh, those are certainly sins. But what about other issues? What, what about other things? Is, is just anything that's disobedience to God, is that a sin? How would we know that from the Bible? Yeah, maybe this would be a good place to introduce this concept. Drew, you, you, you were raised Roman Catholic, right? Yes, that's right. And maybe this would be a good place to introduce this concept. You were talking, Joe, about the, work, the really big sins, uh, as we think of it, and then other sins. And that, that, that concept is codified in the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, isn't it, Drew? Yeah, it is. Uh, you have mortal sin and venial sin, and something I'm not too familiar with, I recall, was the eternal sin. Mortal sin basically is a uh, grave sin, something you need to get it forgiven. You've got to go to the priest and have your sin forgiven, or you're going straight to hell. Whereas venial sin, if you died in venial sin, you wouldn't go to hell. Actually, you wouldn't go to hell. You'd end up going to pur- purgatory until it was purged. Uh, but the difference between the two, from what I recall, is mortal sin is almost any sin. Ex- this is by Catholic doctrine, and I couldn't change over the years, but is almost any sin that you know for sure is a sin, and you're going to do it anyway. Where a venial could be, you know, an accidental thing, and you didn't rise until afterwards. Primarily, that's the basic difference. But you have that distinction between classes of sins, and and it builds into the to the thinking that, well, sure, we all do little sins, but those little sins are no big deal. Uh, right. It's only if I'm... Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein that I really have something to worry about. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so if we're going to try to answer this from the Bible, where would we go to, to find, you know, is there a, is there a dictionary sort of statement that we would find? What is sin? Um, and and I, this would be a good place to, to mention uh, if you're listening in and you any questions or comments, particularly if you uh, have some comments you'd like for us to consider some passages or thoughts on this topic of what is sin at this point, uh, please uh, write those to us in the Zoom app or on Facebook, and we'll try to make a point to uh, look at those. We don't always do as good a job as we would like in that. Especially without Chase. Right, right. We don't have Chase Byers with us today. He's he's away again, and he's the one who keeps an eye on that. But maybe I'll take a peek over there every now and then. It's always nice to have one young guy with us who's uh, sharp and uh, technical to uh, be able to do that. But we'll, we'll we'll make our way through it. Yeah. So what is sin? Uh, one of the passages that uh, maybe a number of our audience would be thinking about would be First John chapter three and uh, verse four in particular that gives a statement of, of sin. Um, whoever commits sin also commits a lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I don't know if your all's translations have that any different or not. Um, uh, mine says, I have ESV. It's everyone who makes pra- a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I think that's the point you're going after. Yeah, yeah. And so sin is acting outside of the law of God. Um, and, and maybe that's even where 
that, that that topic needs to be dealt with because I think some people have in their minds that, well, no, all that's like old Testament, uh, you know, mosaic law, <clears throat> Christ. We don't have law. We have grace. You know, we, we, we have a lot more freedom in Christ. And I think we've really missed several points with, if, if that's an understanding uh, that we have, uh, there is certainly a law of Christ. The New Testament talks about the, that the, the law of liberty, even um, within Jesus's uh, instructions, there is law. There are requirements that are given. Wait a minute, Joe. What did, didn't the Apostle Paul say that that the more we sin, grace even gets better? Uh, yes, he did <laughs> say that. Uh, uh, and then right after that, he said, "Forbid it, uh, certainly not." Um, yeah, uh, he seems to be quoting some. Uh, uh, perhaps in Rome or wherever, uh, that had that idea there in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, certainly not. Um, uh, that's, that's contrary to the thinking of the servant of God, as the slave of God. Um, but if we're going to understand that sin is lawlessness, then we have to understand that there is a lawgiver, that Christ is the judge, he is the lawgiver, and uh, we have the obligation then to follow what he has said. Thoughts on that? Yeah. So, go ahead, Drew. Well, yeah, so I just wanted to clarify that. So you're saying then that there's not a list of items that are considered sins. It's just that if you go against God's law, whatever that is, whatever that law is, it's a sin. Right, right. And in fact, a lot of the sins wouldn't necessarily fall off of a list of actions but off of a list of attitudes, even. Um, you know, you think about the fruit of the Spirit versus the deeds of the flesh in, in Galatians. Um, much of the sins that would take place would be in the attitude of the individual. Uh, for that reason, you can even find people doing what would otherwise be something good, but they are sinning in the process of it. Uh, maybe think about the, the two men that went to pray in Luke 18, you know, here he is, he's praying to God, but in the midst of that, he leaves unjustified because he was proud, boastful, bragging in that prayer. So then one of the obligations that we have is to humble ourselves before God. And if we don't humble ourselves before God, that is sin. Right, exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, uh, and so one of the things we have to do is understand that acting outside of God's law we need to know what Jesus has said, what he expects of us. And when we fail to do that, then we're, we're acting with lawlessness, uh, whether we intend to or not. And, and I think that's one of the things that people sometimes find, they're, they're looking for that loophole. Well, if I don't know what God has said, then I'm not going to be held accountable for that. Like if, you know, I'm driving, but I refuse to look at the speed limit signs, then uh, I'm not going to be held, uh, you know, I'm not going to get a ticket for that. You know, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, what's that talking about? And so we, that would be a picture of the, the first sin, uh, thinking about the, the sin of Adam and Eve, right? Yeah, and so, all right, so what they did is called sin, and we go back and we look at what they did, and they ate some fruit they weren't supposed to eat. Right. That sounds like venial sin. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem that significant. Um, in fact, you know, they, uh, the, the New Testament talks about how Eve was deceived. 
she was tricked by the serpent, and and yet it's yep. described as a sin. And in that text in Romans five and six, we Romans five in particular, um, that's what leads to death. Yeah. So what was so bad about it? Well, what was so bad about it was the woman was doing following her own desires rather than the will of the God who had made her, and and she had a rationale in her head. The serpent had lied to her and said she wouldn't die. And that the reason God had said not to eat of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil was because God didn't want her to have the knowledge that God had to know good and evil. And, um, and so when the woman now has that lie in front of her, and then she gets to think about what she wants to do. Verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So what she was focused on was now her own desires, and she had a rationale for dismissing what God had said. And this reminds me of the passage in First Peter 4, where Peter says something to the effect, the time has passed for doing the... Uh, the desires of man rather than the will of God. There's that contrast between the desires of man and the will of God. And when I do what I want to do, contrary to what God has said, as innocuous as it may seem, as little as it may seem, uh, as trivial as it may seem, it's a big deal if I set myself up in competition with God. It's a big deal if I set my desires up as the thing that I'm going to follow as my God rather than the true God who made me. That's, that's sin. Exactly. Yep. <clears throat> Great point. Um, uh, and so thinking about what that sin is and, and making those decisions, one of the passages we looked at was uh, in trying to understand what sin is. There are a few places that list sins for us. Uh, we don't want to make those as the, the end all of sins, but Romans, the first chapter, um, has some conclusions about uh, some sins and the end result of them. And so maybe just make somewhat of a segue of what is sin and, and who has sinned. Uh, in Romans 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, um, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So God has shown the world, shown man what is right, and uh, man has turned to things like ungodliness and unrighteousness, uh, suppressing the truth in that whether that's publicly or in their own lives, he goes on and he describes that they are without excuse in verse 20. And in particular, the reason they are without excuse, verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him, they did not glorify God, nor were thankful. Those are sins, not glorifying God and not being thankful. That makes a person without excuse. So they don't even have to go off and do some great deed, just Refusing to acknowledge God and give him the glory that's due to him puts us in a sinful state. Verse 22, we'll try to come back to this if we have time and tie it in maybe with Psalm 14. Uh, professing to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness, verse 24. They began to worship the creature and the creator 
uh, instead of the creator. Drop all the way down to verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And then, so what is it that those kinds of people did? Uh, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of evil, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud. Uh, that doesn't seem like that really fits uh, into you know violence and murder and so forth, uh, but proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving. Oh, not all translations, I guess, have that one. But if, if it doesn't, it has unmerciful. The last one there, um, a very similar statement as well. Knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. And so these are sins that are worthy of separation from God. Um, and we look at that list, and you have the biggies in there. You also have these that, like someone who's unmerciful, um, somebody who's, who's just not as, as kind as they need to be. Joe, would and you then, say the last one would be in verse 32? <clears throat> uh, maybe they don't practice such things, but they not only do them, but they also give approval to those who practice them. Condoning? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, 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 very good. I appreciate you, uh, you catching that. That's an excellent point. It's not even just doing those things. But uh, passing them off as, as being okay. So, you know, you, you're talking now about who is guilty of sin. We started out talking about what sin is, and sin includes a lot of things that, that maybe a lot of us don't think are all that bad because we haven't really thought about what we're really doing in terms of setting ourselves up as the standard of authority in place of God. And now you're you're talking about sin in such a way that it seems like we've all done some of these things, and and that's kind of Paul's point here in Romans one. We we do have some comments on our Facebook page here. Uh, Edwin Crozer has three comments. And I'll read these. He says, first of all, if there were no law, there would be no sin, and there would be no need for grace. Uh, and then he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, Romans chapter 2 and verse 12. And he's going back to what we were saying earlier, the idea there is law, there is a standard. Uh, and maybe if we get time, I want to come back to that uh, in a few minutes. And then finally he says, talks about Eve following the creature instead of the creator, and he references Romans one twenty-five, which is where you are right now, Joe. So that story about the very first sin Eve, she's listening to a serpent. She's following her own desires. What's she doing? She's following the creature, whether it be the serpent or herself. She's following the creature rather than the creator. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 1 when he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he starts talking about idolatry. And verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We may not think of ourselves as idolaters when we do what we want to do, but what we're doing is following the creature rather than the creator, and Paul talks about that as idolatry. Great, great, great point. Uh, thanks, Edwin, uh, for those observations. That's really helpful. And uh, if we have time, maybe we'll come back to that Romans 2.12 um, uh, one of the things that Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 show is that 
Gentiles have sinned. They are under the wrath of God. He turns in chapter 2, seems to be pointing toward uh, those who knew the law, who had the law, uh, who weren't Gentiles. You can read through the text, maybe thinking about verse 14. So these would be the people who aren't guilty of sin then. It would be the Gentiles who are guilty of sin. And now in Romans 2, we're getting to, to the godly people who had the scriptures. And so they're the ones who are not guilty of sin. Well, that was the attitude that they had, um, that the, they were not. Um, and as I read chapter 2, it seems as if maybe Paul comes down even harder on them because they had God's word. They had received the promises. They had their forefathers and so forth. And some of the things that he describes for them is that they had despised the riches of his goodness in verse 4, that they had an impenitent heart in verse 5, they were self-seeking and not obeying the truth in verse 8. Um, and so because of that, they were going to face God's wrath as well. Verse 11, there's no partiality with God. Gentile and Jew alike, both are under sin, which, just for a, a sidebar, brings us back to Acts 10. Cornelius, that story of Cornelius, the very first Gentile convert was the the perfect neighbor. He's the guy you want to live next door to you. Just yeah. a, a wonderful, wonderful man. But he was a sinner, and he needed to, for, to have forgiveness. I think it's a great way. The Holy Spirit starts by, by saving Cornelius. Everybody needs salvation. Even the very best Gentile, even the very best Jew needs a salvation. Uh, you know, you look at Acts 2, you might have some of the best Jews. They've traveled from great distances to come to this feast and so forth. The very best of Jew or Gentile is under sin. And in chapter 3, he, he talks about how there's none righteous, no, not one. Uh, Romans 3 and in verse uh, 10, it gets down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody is sinners. So, so let's just <clears throat> pause here for a moment. We have people who listen to this webcast uh, who do not believe in God. We have people who listen to this webcast who not, do not believe the Bible is the Word of God. Um, we have people who listen to this webcast, I'm sure, who don't really know what they believe. You don't know whether you believe. You're not sure is there a God or not. One of the things that, that maybe we can accomplish here is to kind of describe what the stakes, what, it, what is at stake here, and, and light a little bit of a fire under you to say, you, you, need, you better find out. Because if there is a God, and if this is his word, what he is saying is, you, you, whoever you are, have sinned, and you have separated yourself from the God who created you. You may or may not know whether that's true, but if you don't know that's not true, you need to consider, what if it is true? There's a God who created you, and you've sinned in his eyes in such a way that you're in rebellion against him, whether you think of yourself as being in rebellion against anybody or not. And you're going to stand before him, and you're going to be condemned unless you take advantage of what he has done to remove your sin. Because removing your sin is the only way you can be righteous in his eyes. So go, going back to Romans 1 and verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hinder the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known of God is manifest in them, whether you admit it or not, that your very existence is an evidence that there's a God. And if, if that's right, 
then you'd better be figuring out, okay, what do I need to do? That's a great point. Just this last week, I read uh, a couple articles uh, from atheists, uh, one who in particular talked about how um, his opposition to uh, the belief in a creator is that he does not want to believe in a creator. He's scared. He says, if I'm wrong, he said, I don't, I don't want there to be a creator because that scares me if there is. Yeah. I am uh, uh, accountable to a higher power. Um, and I, I, I appreciated his candor and his honesty in the, the article, uh, but he just acknowledged, I don't know whether there's a God or not. I hope that there's not, is what he said, because if not, then he's going to be held to, to the standard. Um, you know, here in, in Pennsylvania, we have the, the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And the Pennsylvania State Police are fond of parking just beyond one of the overpass abutments where you can't see him. And right. as you're coming down that turnpike, speed limit is 70 miles per hour. But if you're doing 85, he's going to get you. Uh, and you're going to have to pay a big fine and your insurance rates are going to go up. Uh, now, you can decide that you don't want to believe that there's a state trooper behind that next bridge abutment because you don't like the idea. It scares you to think that your insurance rates are going to go up for the next three years or that you're going to have to pay a fine. That doesn't change the reality. <laughs> yeah. And, and so the, the, the idea that I'm still going to do 85 um, and just hope that there's not a policeman or hope that there's not a judge or hope that there's not a, a consequence. Um, the, the idea of doing that, somebody would say, well, that's foolish. To, to think that you know what the law is and you're just, you're going to go ahead and break it and hope that there's not somebody on the other side. One of the things that the scriptures teach us is that we do know there's somebody on the other side. Yeah. All things are open and, and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Uh, Hebrews four, God does see everything. Psalm 14 says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But Joe, Joe okay. came out before you go there, Jeff. On this very topic, what you're the thing you're talking about, Ed, Edwin also came out with a comment, very interesting. He says there are plenty who do not believe in God, but I don't think there are any who want the world run as if there is no God. <laughs> that is, when a neighbor steals their car, they want the world to be run as if God exists. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, everybody wants a standard of morality for other people. Mm-hmm. there's nobody who wants the world to be in anarchy everybody else they may want that for themselves to some degree um but they they don't want people being you know taking things from them and so forth so so okay so what you, what you were saying joe you were trying you were making the point that everybody everybody has sinned everybody and and of course paul goes on to say in romans chapter 3 and verse 9 um uh, in Romans chapter three and verse nine, and I somehow I can't quote it right now. I'll turn to it, or if you get there before I do, you, you read. Yeah. Uh, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Mm-hmm. And and as he goes on and he talks about this applicability of what he's saying to Jews and Greeks, he says in Romans chapter three verse twenty three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, whether you're Jew or Gentile. But let's make it personal here. You know, maybe somebody is the exception. Maybe somebody thinks I'm the exception. And what if, Joe, what if we have somebody 
who's listening to the webcast, really good person, somebody who is, who is young, hasn't lived decades and had time to commit all these sins, somebody who's maybe successful in life, maybe even successful enough that he's doing well in life because he's been minding his pews and cues and got a good education, got a good job. And maybe he's even respected enough in the community to the point that he's elected to be a, some kind of governor or ruler or some kind of council member or something like that. Somebody that if you asked him, if you told him he needs to keep the commandments, somebody who would say, I have kept the commandments from my youth up. Somebody like that, Joe, maybe maybe we need to look at Romans and say, yeah, all have sinned, whether Jew or Greek, but there are certain individuals like I just described who are really not in this category of being separated from God by sin. So if I had a lot of wisdom, I would probably respond to that person and say something to the effect of, there is one thing you lack. Ah, <laughs> and somebody did have a lot of wisdom and did respond to somebody like this. Right, right. Drew, so you, we, go ahead. Drew, do you have a comment? No, not, no, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a great illustration uh, that, that the Lord gives, uh, the, the scriptures give for us of conversation between the rich young ruler and, and Jesus. You know, let's just assume that he was telling the truth and all those things he had kept uh, from his youth. He still was not sinless. So uh, just for, for our audience's sake, not everybody may be familiar with the story and may not realize I was describing somebody who had a conversation with Jesus it's recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, when you put all the accounts together, you see that he was rich, he was young, he was a ruler. And uh, Matthew 19, verse 16 says, He came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus' first comment to him is, Why do you ask me concerning what is good? One there is who is good. Mm -hmm. Right there, that should tell us something. Exactly. This young man wasn't good. He, he was good compared to maybe you and me. He was good compared to most people. But there's one who is good. And any of us measuring ourselves against God, we come up short. Right. And so, so Jesus goes ahead and says in verse 17, uh, if you will enter life, keep the commandments. And he says, which? And Jesus said, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says to him, all these things have I observed, what lack I yet? And you get the feeling he's anticipating the answer, oh, nothing, you don't lack a thing, you're fine, I didn't realize you had done such a good job. But Jesus challenges him and says, if you would be perfect, if you'd be complete, Go sell that which you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he was one that had great possessions, and there we learn what he lacked. What he lacked was a love for Christ above his possessions, right. and that's sin. Yeah, good point. Uh, don't want to get too far off on this, but I think maybe this will help to, with some relevance to, to some people and how they think or don't think about their own sin. It seems to me in this text, uh, were you reading from Mark or Matthew? Which account were you reading? Matthew. Okay, so I'm, I, I just opened mine to, to Mark. Uh, I think they're, they're consistent here. Um, in the sins that Jesus 
quoted off to him from the Ten Commandments. He doesn't list the first four. Those are dealing between God and man. He lists the last six, right? Right. Um, And except he doesn't. He doesn't list thou shalt not covet. Interesting. I think that what Jesus is doing in this process is by the omission of that one, he brings it to greater attention. All these things I've kept. There's one more commandment there, though. How are you dealing with yeah. this? And, and you know, so he challenges him in connection with the concept of that last commandment. So right, yeah. that's the way that I've I've perceived it because it took me a while to figure out why did Jesus leave one out? You know, he he listed almost all of them. Why leave one out? Yeah, um, that's that's that looks like an astute observation, Joe. Well, uh, I'll take credit for it. I don't remember where I heard it. Um, but uh, it just makes me think, do we deal with sin the same way? Well, I've not committed adultery. I've not committed mass murder. I've not, you know. Yeah, and- I've, I've not committed adultery, but I'm not going to say anything about fornication. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, we might pick and choose some of the things that we view and then, you know, downplay, ignore, conveniently forget. But the fact is, we are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. John, so, uh, you, you brought up First John before in, in chapter one, talking about the individual who might say, I, I've never committed a sin. He said this, uh, let me begin in verse 5 of chapter 1 of 1. He says, this is the message we've learned from him in Jesus and John speaking and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness. One is good, as you had said. Uh, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. And that's the, the objective here, one with another. And the blood of Christ uh, but of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. And then here's the punchline. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're lying to ourselves. Yeah. Great point. And thinking about then um, that idea of us lying, us deceiving, uh, makes us rather foolish to, you know, if somebody fools me, that's one thing. But if I fool myself, uh, that that's really a shameful thing, particularly when it comes to something so significant. And so that text that I was in earlier in Psalm 14, um, that's a lot of that is quoted or referenced in Romans 3. I like to think about Romans 14 because as he goes down through that, at the very end of that Psalm, or I said Romans 14, Psalm 14, I'm sorry. And at the very end of that Psalm 14, he, after saying the fool has said it's hard, there's no God. The Lord looks down from heaven, verse 2, uh, to see if there's any who seek and understand. They've all turned aside, verse 3. Uh, workers of iniquity, no knowledge, verse 4, uh, and so forth. But verse 7, the psalmist says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. You almost see the psalmist looking at this horrible scene of mankind, that everyone is wicked, everyone is sinful, there's no hope, Uh, we're all lost and separated from God, oh, that the salvation would come out of Zion. And recognizing that that is practically quoted in Romans, the third chapter, Paul draws that same conclusion 
for a long time, I'd sort of thought that Romans 3.23 was the last verse of that chapter, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thankfully, that's not where the story ends. Right. 24, but being justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be the propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And so we're all sinners. There's no hope for us. Jesus came to bring that hope. We can't save ourselves. We're, we're, we're men that are drowning in the ocean of sin, and we cannot reach shore. But the Lord has come and been a, become a lifesaver for us uh, by giving his own life. We have some, we have some good comments here. Uh, I don't know whether to go to the comments here or following up I'll, one in connection with what you were just saying, and then we'll get back to the comments we have on the Facebook page. Um, this, this statement in verse 26 of Romans three, that he might himself be just. So God set forth Jesus as a propitiation. Jesus had to suffer and die on the cross that God might himself be just and the just fire of him that has faith in Jesus. That highlights something that I think is missing in a lot of people's thinking who don't take seriously our sin. Um, for God to be just, he has to punish our sin. It's not a matter of God just being able to say, okay, you sin, but it's just a venial sin. Or it's not a matter of God being able to say, okay, you sin, but it, you know, to err is human, to forgive is divine. It's not a matter of God just being able to say, okay, you've sinned, but you know what? I'm merciful. I'll just forget about it. It's a matter of God saying, you've sinned, and if I'm going to be just, your sin is going to have to be punished. But here's Jesus who's willing to take the punishment, and if you want to become a part of Jesus' death, if you want to be in that, then your sins can be punished in him rather than you having to be condemned eternally. That's something I think a lot of people don't understand. Great. Good. Wait, wait. I, I, I don't want to get too far off on this, but I'm I recall you had mentioned myself, I was raised a Catholic and I was faced with the mortal and venial sin thing. And as I got into my early twenties, you know how I got rid of my sin? Wow. I started saying God doesn't exist. Hmm. I had to justify my life and what I wanted to do and get rid of my guilt. One way or another, we all have to get rid of our guilt. And so what I did, I stuck my head in the ground and said, well, Ah, this is only a fairy tale. It can't really be. It doesn't matter. And it's all made up. But whatever excuses people make, I made that excuse in my early twenties. God doesn't exist. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who do that. They they are practical atheists because they don't want to deal with the concept of their own sin. Yeah. Uh, we do have some comments here. I want to go back to on the Facebook page. This is going back to something we were talking about earlier. We were talking about Romans chapter 1 and verse 25 and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, which is idolatry. And Edwin Crozier had made the observation on our Facebook page, uh, you know, when Eve sinned, she was obeying the creature, whether it be the serpent or whether it be her own desires. Well, then he made the point, isn't that uh, actually 
Uh, oh, no, he's, he's talking about the rich young ruler, I think. Isn't that lack actually violating the first command, have no other gods before me? Yes, yeah, so, so we'll bridge the two thoughts. You have Eve violating what is going to be the first command. You have the rich young ruler who, to whom Edwin's alluding here in his comment, the lack that Jesus referred to when he loved his riches more than he loved the Lord. So his riches were his God. What is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, whether that God is your riches or your own desires, whatever. So is that a big deal? Yeah, that's a big deal. Jesus talked about the two great commandments. The first, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. And the second, like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So we, we talk about these things where it doesn't really seem all that big a deal. I'm just doing what I want to do. Wow, that's a big deal. That's violating the first commandment. That's violating the great commandment. And then Edwin says, don't worry about his comments. We've moved on to a more important point. But no, I, 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 there's one thing Edwin said here that I do want to get to. He says, in the Ten Commandments, isn't coveting about wanting what belongs to the neighbor. So, Joe, this goes back to the point you were making. You have Jesus talking to him about the commandments, but he doesn't quote the Tenth Commandment. And then what we did was, and you made the connection here, that's really, that is the one that hits home with the rich young ruler. He's guilty of covetousness. And Jesus says, go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor. Edwin's comment is setting us up to, to address the question that's going to be in a lot of people's minds. How is it covetousness if I don't sell everything I have and give to the poor? Not that Jesus requires that of everybody, but there was a heart problem that is in fact covetousness. But how is it covetousness if I, if I, if I just like having a lot of stuff? If, how, in other words, Joe, what he's getting at is, is covetousness just when I want what somebody else has? What is covetousness? I think that's a great point, and I struggled through that as I was, when I'd seen that that was the commandment that was left out of the text, I thought, well, maybe that just doesn't fit. Maybe that's not relevant because he has what he has. He's not wanting, you know, he's not wanting the, the in-ground pool that his neighbor has. He doesn't keep his stuff, and so he's not being covetous. But who do those things really belong to that are the rich young rulers? Mm-hmm. First, they belong to God. But then I think in a very real sense, if we are, maybe it's greed that we would think of, or, you know, this, this wanting to amass things, that is, I, I think, inseparable with covetousness, because we need to be constantly seeking to do good to our neighbor. Um, well, in many places, in fact, the word greed would be a good English representation where our Bible say covetousness, greed would work very well. Covetousness is not just wanting what somebody else has. Uh, it's just that, that uh, is avarice the word that I want here? It's just that desire to have more and more. In fact, um, the, the word planaxia, which is translated covetousness in many passages, the first part of that pleon has to do with more. Um, Planism is, is an expression that just uses a lot of words, more and more words, kind of like I talk sometimes. Uh, and, and so covetousness is just this uh, insatiable desire to have more. In Luke, the 12th chapter, you do have a story about a brother who was coming to Jesus saying, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And you could argue he wanted what his brother had. 
But what Jesus says is, keep yourselves from all covetousness. This is Luke 12, 15. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Here, covetousness isn't just wanting what somebody else has, but it's that attitude that what I'm all about is having stuff, covetousness. Yeah, and in fact, maybe a good way of seeing this is, if I'm not mistaken, the, the word covetous or covet in Exodus 20, for example, the Ten Commandments, it's the same word in Genesis 3 uh, of what Eve saw as desirable. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, of course, going from Greek to Hebrew, but the, the Greek word that is used there in Genesis 3, lust, it's the same word that's often translated lust, which is desire. desire. Right, right. Yeah. We're about and, out of time, and, Joe. Oh, we are, yes, thank you. Um, well, uh, it almost makes me wonder if we shouldn't have even started with the concept of holiness to recognize um, why, um, but uh, perhaps for another future webinar we can uh, even go back and, and deal with that aspect uh, of it. Thank you all very much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff and Drew, for your tremendous help today. Uh, for the, those that have commented and those that have listened, uh, thank you for very much, and we hope to join you uh, here again next week.